Hello and welcome to the Game Three Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. Today, we're live. We're talking to Danny LaRue. What's going on, buddy? Doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk to you because it's trade deadline season uh, coming up in six days. Basically, the entire league will be eligible to be traded, save for a few guys that signed semi-recent extensions, things like that. January 15th is that date. That's when guys like D'Angelo Russell, I believe Rui Achimura fits into this bucket as well. Those guys can be moved. So I thought it was worth having Danny on at some point this week, kind of talk trade deadline primer 2.0. We did this in December, right around the 15th, when a large portion of the league became eligible to be moved. And that obviously shook some things up. Obviously, the OG Ananobi quickly Barrett deal wasn't necessarily impacted by that. But sometimes just having the amount of guys that can be traded shakes things up in the market to where you know what is out there, you know what isn't out there, things like that. So I'm excited to talk about that with Danny. We're going to talk definitely some Warriors, definitely some Kings as we're talking. I mean, look, I'm assuming the Pistons will find a way to lose this game because they always find a way to lose. But as we're talking, the Pistons are up 18 points on the Kings, which is uh, a miracle. And more importantly, the Kings gave up 47 first quarter points, which kind of says a lot about where the Sacramento Kings defense is uh, at this juncture. So the Kings, it feels like, need something, at least. I think they've been quite good, but they need something to change. Uh, the Warriors certainly need something. The Suns, I think, could use some sort of shakeup deal. The Hawks feel like they're certainly in the market to make something happen. I've heard some things about like the Hornets maybe wanting to make some moves for obvious reasons. They're completely out of it at this point. So it's interesting. We're in a point where the season is coming down to the midway point and there's a lot of excitement to be had there, but also trades are going to happen. We're going to get some roster shakeups, baby. And I think this is going to be a semi active deadline, not a crazy active deadline, but like a semi active one. What do you think, Danny? I think it's going to be active in terms of calls and that the, some of those calls will bear fruit, not in February or January. Like it could be setting the table for July and August and maybe some June, depending on how the draft shakes up. But I The biggest thing that I think could end up holding things back, our, our colleague John Hollinger has written about this well, is just do the teams that have the pieces to sell want to sell? And I, I don't yeah. know. I, 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 you know. You and I have had plenty of discussions about the Bulls and the Raptors, and we probably will in this as well. And we'll see. <laughs> I mean, the OG and Anobi trade is definitely a sign in a positive direction as far as the Raptors go, beyond the way I think it helped the Raptors. So we'll get there. Uh, but it's, you know, the, it, it takes two sides, you know, the old economic thing of like the double coincidence of wants of like, you know, you have to want what they have and the, there's the internal valuation element, which is different than, you know, other commodities. Not that I'm saying players are commodities or anything like that. Um, it's, it's always really challenging to, to run through all that. But the biggest kind of thing that I want to set the table on is just what, what do teams want to do? What are they willing to do? Like what's off the table? What's on the table is going to be so. Yeah. Danny, we've got some people saying that you need to turn your volume up. Uh, again, we tried to, we thought Danny had it whenever we, uh, whenever we went, but apparently not. I will go up almost as high as I can and we will see how that goes. I think it'll be good. Okay. Mike volume. There he is. Uh, people in the comments, let us know is Danny's volume. Good. 
Have we figured out the volume question? Danny, keep talking. Yes. Um, oh, people usually don't tell me that. I'm a little bit flustered. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, I, 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 I bumped everything up basically as far as it can go. I could move a bunch of things, a little bit bigger stuff, but yeah, I think we're there. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big one. And then, I mean, I know because you were working on the outline, like there teams like the Warriors where we know there are, there's a universe of moves that are possible. How does Mike Dunleavy, how does Joe Wakeup see that universe? Are there are there things that they're just straight up not willing to do or that they are willing to do? And we won't get all of the clarification, all of the information there, but we'll definitely get at least some. Try to move your mic closer, people are saying. Maybe yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah, I can I can try that, but it's um yeah, it's I, I think it might be something with all the different audio programs that are open. I'll I'll, I'll see what I can do. Okay. Let's I'll keep talking me. and we'll keep yeah. going. I can hear you. I think people can hear you. I think it's just a little bit off. I think our like audio mix is a little bit off on StreamYard and it never is. Um, okay, much better when closer. Okay. People are and I'll, and I'll bump I'll bump things up a little bit more too. Okay, that's about yeah. as far as I can go. Yeah. Connor is Connor Andrews is saying uh, it's like Sam's talking to an imaginary friend. This is amazing. Uh, there we go. Shout out I mean, Connor. He, do, he does that too, but usually, usually <laughs> it's not in podcast form. This is amazing. Okay, look, we wanted to start with John Morant. Well, I yeah. think that people are saying that this is all good now in terms of the audio. I hope that people are good in terms of the audio. Uh, we wanted to start with John Morant. John Morant is out for the season after a shoulder injury that. It seems was not as serious originally. I saw Taylor Jenkins say that John Morant was going to go through warmups. I think the game before his final diagnosis of being out for the season, the fact that he is now out for the season, I think comes as a surprise to people. Uh, It's obviously just an incredibly disappointing run for John Morant, who had played nine games and had played really, really well since getting back from his suspension to start the year, it felt like the Grizzlies had a shot to get back into the play and run. I don't know that I thought they would totally get there. They had dropped a few games like against the Raptors at home, for instance, that was really quite poor. Uh, You can't lose those games against losing teams at home, frankly, like the Raptors have been better since they got Barrett and quickly, but Home games become essential when you start the season six and 19 before your star player gets back from suspension. I don't know that the Grizzlies were ever going to quite get to where they hoped they were going to be able to get to and fight through this whole John Morant absence to get to a play in birth, but undeniably this just like kills their season and will now result in them. I, I don't know. I'll ask you this question. How do you think the Grizzlies approach the rest of this season? Because that's, I think what, my biggest question is they have a lot of really competitive dudes like Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr. Like those guys want to win. They have been on the precipice of winning over the course of the last few years. And part of what the Grizzlies look for in draft prospects and guys that they take onto their team are guys that are high level competitors. But I, I do feel like their best step is to take a step back here and maybe even try and like not shake up the core, but shake up some of the pieces around the core kind of if they can. Where do you think the Grizzlies go at this point for just the rest of this year? It's definitely painful. And I, as we saw with that Tampa Raptor season, like it's it's even harder when you didn't necessarily expect it. And yeah. 
it can be useful because like Memphis is probably going to come out of this with a better opportunity in the draft than we expected them to have at any point in the near future. That is faint consolation in a year when if they had been healthy, they could have been relevant. But I mean, we knew Ja was suspended. We, we eventually found out that Steve Nams was hurt. We knew that Brandon Clark was going to be out. So my instinct is that this is not going to spur Zach Kleiman and company to make major moves. I think that Jaron yeah. and Bain and John ja Morant are going to, to be around not only because of like the injury and everything else, but just because they want to know what they have in those guys. And, and it's unfortunate that we get another year where that is not clarified in terms of where they fit in the Western conference. But yeah, Memphis, I think that there is going to be an opportunity to consider stuff on the periphery. They don't have to do anything, but does this cause them to reevaluate how they've managed the end of their roster where like Memphis, for example, didn't use the non-taxpayer mid-level exception this year. And they, they basically bet that their rotation was going to be good enough. And they bet on having guys like Kenneth Lofton and, you know, if you want to go with LaRavia, who wasn't even in the rotation, but like various different things, like young guys would step up. And I wouldn't say that that has worked out particularly well for them. I don't know if this is going to spur action there, but it could. And the idea of, you know, throwing a little bit more in terms of resources, the practical challenge they'll run into there, though, is that this team gets a lot more expensive. Desmond Bain's contract kicks in. So my instinct is more of the same and hopefully they can get a good draft pick and nail it. And that changes their trajectory a little bit, probably not going to be everything unless they get number one. And there's a, a guy that's really good there, but adding a talented player who is cost controlled, even if they're not useful in year one could actually be a really, really good thing for the Grizzlies long-term, even if they would happily trade that for a year where they were relevant. The name that people like the fans tweeted at me last night, whenever the news got announced was Marcus Smart, right? People wanted to know, is Marcus Smart going to be available now? Is he somebody they could look to move? My thing is that I do not think that they will look to move Marcus Smart. Like it's not impossible that if somebody comes and blows them away with an offer that they could look to do something like that. But remember, this is a team that traded two first round picks and Tyus Jones essentially in the off season to get Marcus smart because they felt like Marcus smart was the perfect core piece to put next to John Morant, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson jr. And unfortunately just due to circumstances due to Josh suspension, due to everything that goes along with those things, this team just did not get a chance to even really take a look at what those what that group looks like together realistically. So those four players this season combined have played uh, 114 minutes together and that's it. And that's just not long enough to get a real sample size on what this core group is capable of, in my opinion. So look, if somebody came like, I think they're cognizant that Marcus smart turns 30 in, you know what? I think it's March maybe. I think they're cognizant that he doesn't quite fit the same age timeline as the rest of their core. If somebody would come and go nuts with an offer, I think that's possible that they would look to move him. I, I don't see it though, unless it's like a crazy offer that's more than what they paid for him. And I think it's hard to find a team that would be willing to do that. A lot of the contenders around the league 
they're not really in a position to do that. Like you could say maybe the Kings like could do something for Marcus Smart and they could try to overpay for Smart. But the Grizzlies want to contend as well. And one team that they would then have to get past is the Kings. This is a competitive environment. He kind of ticks a lot of boxes that help the Kings. I don't know. I, I struggle to see I struggle to see a trade for Marcus Smart that makes sense to me. Like the Bucks don't have enough. The Celtics, I don't think he can be traded back there for a year. Yeah. Uh yeah. Like the well, Nuggets so I, don't I have enough. Ju- I can jump in. Um yeah. generally speaking, the only reason a general manager is going to give up on a group that didn't get a chance is if there would if they were never going to get a chance to begin with. I mean, that's sort of the story of the Chicago Bulls right now as well. But Memphis, this was always going to be a multi-year endeavor, and they knew that in the beginning because John Morant was suspended for 25 games and everyone knew it when the Marcus Smart trade happened. So I agree with you that it is possible. I think that Kleiman and company will listen, but it would take being overwhelmed by an offer, and the reason why Boston made the move is that they were overwhelmed by the offer that the Grizzlies made. So it's very unlikely for that to happen twice in such short sequence, especially when what has happened this year has not exactly inspired that kind of confidence in another team. So I think Memphis will largely keep it together. The big question I think for me in terms of where they're going to, how they're going to handle this is just, I brought up the roster spot issue, but also Luke Kennard and the luxury tax, like that's not as sexy as some of the other stuff, but like basically if Memphis wants to keep this entire group together, then they probably would have a tax bill. The actually the improvement in their draft pick makes that a little bit trickier, but it would probably be a relatively short term issue because their guys, their contracts are pretty much set. And then the cap is going to go up. It's starting in 25 with the new media rights deal. So either they can convince ownership to do pay it once, or they can, take a small sacrifice and do it. I My prediction right now is that the 24-25 Grizzlies would look significantly similar to the current ones. I've been wrong before. I don't expect to be here. Yeah, the only other thing that I think this builds upon is if they wanted to make a deal for a star, their pick is now quite a bit more valuable. Look, I've talked at length about this draft not being all that impressive at the top comparatively to other drafts. But even if they end up like with a top five pick, top four pick, something like that, that's still a lottery level talent. It might not be a top four level talent like you would have in a normal draft, but that's still a lottery ish value pick that you're able to move out in a deal for a potential guy that you want to go get. So or, or could even help you more than, you know, some some other incoming players could you know like they, maybe it's not in 24 25 but 25 26 when these guys are getting more expensive and everything else totally it's absolutely right so the pick is going to help them long term i think regardless of if they use it or trade it uh, i think marcus smart stays the only thing that i can see is like you mentioned canard like maybe something involving like brandon clark maybe something involving stephen adams's deal maybe something involving I don't know. I'm, I'm like trying to like spitball off the top of my head as much as anything, but I can see a world where they look to make some small adjustments around the core group of four guys that they have, not necessarily moving any of those four guys. Uh, and look, I, I want to spend a minute here on John Morant. John Morant was like wrecking worlds uh, since he came back. He clearly came back like with intent, with a real point to prove uh, after his suspension. And whatever you think of the suspension, I think it's probably overboard for 
what happened with John Morant, but John Morant is a fantastic player. And the fact that we're going to lose him for a year, basically where we don't get to see him play, it sucks. It's horrible. He was averaging 25 points, six rebounds, eight assists. Uh, he'd been absolutely fantastic in every regard, except for really shooting the ball from distance at this point. It, it, it does just, it, it sucks that John Moran is not going to be around for the rest of the year. It does. And Morant to me, even in just nine games established that he's, he was the level of player that he was before. And considering Morant was incredibly good before all these things happened, it's encouraging that he's there. This absence will be different because it's an injury, but from what I know, which is not a ton on shoulder subluxations, the expectation is that he'll eventually get back and maybe it'll take a little bit of time shooting for him, some other stuff, but that is encouraging. And so for Rant, I mean, he's the central player in terms of whatever Memphis's future ceiling is like that is, that is a John Morant based ceiling, but we'll have to see where it is. So unfortunately we lose, lose this year, but honestly, if, and this is a false construct, but if you were going to lose a year, you might as well lose a year that was already lost. So yeah. that's, you know, you don't want to you don't want to lose anything. You don't want to do anything else. But like there are, you know, if if it had to happen at any point, which it did not, this would be the point. The last point here I want to talk about is just real quick, like what this means for some of the other teams in the West. I think that, look, I've talked a little bit this year about how I wonder if Utah wants to have the pick transfer this year that they owe Oklahoma City. I would bet that they do because this draft is not particularly strong at the top. And I think they're probably a couple years away still. So if they're going to end up in the top 10 in 2024 and 2025, uh, I think that you would, or, you know, in the lottery in those years, I think you'd prefer that pick to transfer this year as opposed to next year, next year's draft. You know, people have questioned the top of that draft a little bit. I kind of disagree with that i think the top of the 2025 draft looks quite good between cooper flag ace bailey uh common malawak vj edgecombe guys like that i would want to make sure i have that pick if i was utah this could help position utah with how well they've played recently to potentially have that pick transfer that's kind of the thing that stood out most to me they're only a half game out of the play in picture right now which given how they started the season, tremendous credit to Will Hardy, tremendous credit to some of those guards like Colin Sexton, like trying to really get it together a little bit and play at a really high level after their backcourt really struggled in the first portion of the season. But with teams like the Lakers, the Suns, the Rockets, struggling in the way that they are, certainly the Warriors, there, there is a pretty real chance here that I think Utah could end up sneaking into that playing picture and thus out of that top 10 mix. It's entirely possible. It, it kind of could have some weird parallels to the, what were some people dubbed the suicide squad Grizzlies team all those years ago, where it was like guys <laughs> that didn't have the same incentives necessarily as everything else. And they pulled their way in. I could see that for Utah, especially if that's what the organization prefers. And it wouldn't surprise me to see Danny Ainge see it that way. And especially considering how bad the bottom of the league is this year, that yeah. even if lottery reform has made it that the fifth worst odds aren't what they were, you know, like that that's different, that does change things where it's like you can't – if you can't get into the top top three odds because those teams are uncatchable, well, then maybe it becomes more palatable. And also, 
I don't think the Jazz are going to be one of those franchises that throws everything in on a deal, but there is value organizationally in having your own stuff moving forward. Like there are teams where if it's a marginal difference in your eyes between 24 and 25, just get the obligation out of the way. And then you can just see where things go from that point. You don't, don't have it linger. And for that one, it's top 10 and 24 and 25 and then top eight and 26. So then you can just, you just make the moves you're going to make. I think that's right. Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk NBA trade deadline stuff. Now, who's the team you're most looking at, Danny, and why is it the Warriors? It's actually not the Warriors for me because I I don't know which path they're going to choose if they choose a path at all. Uh, yeah. I think that it's probably still Toronto just because Siakam is a, is a clear question mark. Uh, I, I did a piece for The Athletic talking ostensibly about Jeremy Grant, but I got into a lot of the voice. Grant will be an interesting player at the deadline too because and actually my probably my true number one even though they'll probably disappoint me again because they always seemingly always do is the bulls because demar Derozan may end up being the best player remaining to change teams and because of the way that affects free agency because Derozan, it's you know i pre-agency is a good short shorthand for this of the idea of like kind of setting setting your destination six months early and for an older player where bird rights could be valuable. Like, I think that makes a lot of sense. We could see it in other circumstances too. So we'll talk about the Warriors a lot, but if we're saying like, who is my number one team to watch? I think it's the Bulls. I think the Bulls are really interesting still. The Kobe White lift over the course of the last, you know, month and a half or so has really adjusted some things for them. They're in the play in uh, situation right now which is staggering in so many ways uh, i think that they will get jumped by the raptors if you made me bet but another team that is in 12th right now is atlanta and atlanta looks like based on reporting based on kind of what i know they're looking to shake up their core in a really substantial way either sure. you know via selling via just generally trying to change some things on their roster we'll see what they end up doing but I'm fascinated to find out if Chicago is in this play in picture, do they actually decide, Hey, we're willing to sell as opposed to we would rather just stay status quo and like do everything seriously. Like I've said this on the podcast last week and this is all the reporting coming out of Chicago as well. Like I really don't know that Alex Caruso is available right now. Like my, my impression is they don't want to move Alex Caruso, which is crazy, like in a number of levels, because Caruso's plus minus like win total, right? Like he's not helping them win five or six more games. I love Caruso. He's a great player. He's going to help them win like a couple of games one way or another, right? In NBA playoff team, Alex Caruso is a much more high leverage, super valuable player. He could help you win two games in the playoffs, which is an incredibly more high leverage situation than the regular season situation that the Bulls are in right now. So if I was the Bulls, like I would be moving Alex Russo. His value will never be higher. He's 30 years old. Like he is a guy that unfortunately has dealt with injuries because of how hard he plays. I love Alex Russo. I don't mean this in any way negatively about him in any way, shape or form. The guy has been one of my favorite players in the league for a little while now. I just think from a 
asset and a value perspective, like it makes all the sense in the world to move this guy. Well, and I, I don't know that they are. One other quick point on that. I mean, Caruso is also presumably only a year and a half away from being properly paid. So part of the yes. intrigue for Caruso for another team is that he's making less than you think he is worth to your team. It also, due to the due to the collective bargaining agreement salary matching rules, means that you don't have to give as much in terms of player quality to get him. Or you could structure a deal where Chicago open to it. They're very tight on the tax, where you give out more money, and maybe Chicago could accommodate that in a different side, maybe with something with DeRozan or other things. So yeah, Chicago has the, they have the widest berth of things they can do. They also probably won't do most of those things because that's just the way that the way that they have often operated. And Arturis yeah. has, has generally believed in this group. And it also, I think it's that he and ownership are pulling in the same direction, which is that they value being relevant, even if it's low level relevancy more than I would, if I were running a team and, It'd be different if I were running, you know, if I were owning a team, maybe I would see it differently. I don't know that I would, but that is a key question. But I know you want it. So I'll give you the choice. It seems like the next two. Well, let's let's here. let's finish on the Bulls before sure. we go. And then we'll move to a couple other places. The Bulls. I wonder if that has shifted a little bit with them playing better without Zach Levine. Having said that. I kind of think that might tank Zach Levine's value league wide a little bit, right? Uh, the fact that they have looked so much better without him is a huge issue. He has not looked great, in my opinion, since he's been back. Uh, he's been coming off the bench. He's played somewhere between like 20 and 35 minutes, depending on the night. I, I don't know what they do with Levine. I think they probably would be more amenable to moving him based off of how they played without him, but they're still going to want value for him. Like, I don't think they're going to just give him away at the end of the day. So that's what makes this hard. I think for the bulls, generally speaking, you predict that teams are going to behave in the same way that they behaved. And the bulls have been more optimistic on Levine than most. And the, they would probably be more comfortable. Like they would be willing to move off him. I'm sure for value, but is another team willing to pay it? And, and I would be far more worried in their case about the downside risk, the idea that, yes, even if there is a distinct chance that Levine plays better either this year or moving forward and can can rehab the value, how much does that change what you actually get for him or the chance that he has a rough stretch and all of a sudden another team is looking at it and saying, oh, geez, after this year, 43 million, 46 million, 40, I think it's 48.9 million player option and go, yeah. oh, we don't want to have that at all. And I would be more scared of the albatross than I would of the we sold too low in in Levine's yeah. situation. Honestly, in a lot, especially for one position defenders, like there's there's are so many ways that those players can drop off and be less useful. And with yeah. Levine, especially somebody who I don't think could be the best offensive player on a really good team, then it's just like, well, what are you what are you waiting for? What are you what the possibility that he gets there? So yeah, I, and I think there's a scenario where DeRozan's still there. Caruso's still there. We're super mad about it, but Levine is elsewhere. And I probably am praising the Bulls in that case to high marks on the on the Levine element of it, probably not on the others. But that's the part of why the Bulls are number one on my list is the idea that there's so much more variance in what they could do. Yeah, like I, I really wonder if like something for Levine is like the Pistons, right? That, that was my take whenever the whole thing happened was just like, 
lower end team like that's struggling right now gets Levine as like a floor raiser to help some of the younger guys uh you know goes in you do something like Levine for Joe Harris James Wiseman both of those expiring deals uh that gets you to 30 Marcus Sasser and like a first or something like that nothing crazy but like that's a deal where the Bulls, I think, can say, hey, we got a former number two overall pick, even though James Wiseman has not been that value. Uh, hey, we got another first round pick in Marcus Sasser. Hey, we got a third first round pick. Like you can sell it to your fan base that way. I'm not saying this is a good idea. Yeah. I wouldn't do this by, if I was by, Detroit. By the way, but I'm not Troy trade, Weaver. <laughs> if that trade happened, I would give the Pistons a – oh, sorry. I would give the Bulls a straight A. I would have to think about the Pistons, which which flavor of bad grade they would get. Um. Yeah, and that's, and 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 you, there are teams that do that. I mean, I always invoke the Serge Ibaka to the Magic trade as a good example of this. That moral hazard, different elements in play, and the Pistons are probably moral hazard central at this trade deadline, assuming Troy Weaver yeah. is still in the head spot. But there are others. I mean, even though it was a different entity, you know, Vlade was running the team at the time. Zach Levine and the Kings, there has been a history there, and we've already seen Kevin Herter's place get a little bit murkier. Salary matching gets trickier there. So there are other possibilities when it comes to Levine. And then with DeRozan, I think the most likely way that a DeRozan deal actually happens is it, it probably is going to be like off the record, but him going to the Bulls and saying, I'm not coming back. And yeah it's better for you if you move me earlier and maybe he'll even give some preferred destinations or something like that. And then that's what it takes for the front office to come to grips with where they are and say, well, if the world that we're envisioning is not possible, then we need to evaluate and shift appropriately. Worth noting as well in the DeRozan case, there was a report from Shams earlier this year that, they were discussing an extension in some capacity, right? Uh, it seemed like they were on different pages in terms of what that extension would look like, but there was clearly a discussion there. I think that those two parties like feel okay about where that relationship is. It's just whether or not Tamar wants to go try and win a title, right? Tamar's getting older. Again, a guy that you will not find a bigger Demar DeRozan fan than me like i love the guy i think he's a hall of famer i would love to see him win maybe he wants to play a more substantial role uh with the bulls maybe he's happy in chicago he is a guy that stayed very loyal to toronto throughout the course of his career and unfortunately did not get a chance to share in the success of their title because he was moved for Kawhi leonard i don't know maybe he would be happy uh continuing to play there I don't know. It all depends on what Demar wants. I think you're dead on on that front. Uh, Let's move on, though. You wanted to bring up two teams. Who are the two teams you want me to pick from? Warriors and Hawks. Let's talk about the Hawks first, I think. The impression I've gotten is that, like, look, the Hawks are not going to move, like, Kobe Bufkin, Jalen Johnson. Uh, I don't think they're moving, like, Trey Young or anything like that. Uh, But, like, Basically, everybody else, like they're pretty open to discussing at this point. That reporting is out there that, that kind of lines up with what I've been told. That includes DeJounte Murray, includes Clint Capella, Bogdan Bogdanovich, et cetera, et cetera. They, I think, are the team now. I, I did it, just did a podcast over the weekend with Samson Folk saying that the Raptors hold the keys to the deadline. 
I actually kind of wonder if it's Atlanta now, because if Atlanta decides that they want to really make some adjustments with this core and like really decides they want to move Capella, they want to move DeAndre Hunter, they want to move DeJounte Murray, that is a lot of talent. That's a lot of starter quality equity and player that could be hitting the market that could result in like some actual real shakeups, I think, in terms of potentially even the title picture, but certainly the playoff picture. It's definitely a fair thing to to claim. And one piece of background information I think is essential to understanding the Hawks situation is that due to the trade that they made to acquire DeJounte Murray in the first place, they do not have control of their own draft pick in 25, 26, and 27. So it's yeah. a swap in 26. But what that means basically is that the incentive to tank in its traditional sense, you know, typically a sell-off is for two reasons. One is to acquire things for the players you're selling off. And then the other is to get equity using your own, improving your own picks. And they wouldn't improve their own picks because they don't have them. That does not prevent them from making these moves. It just takes away one of the incentives. Incidentally, I wrote exactly this piece about the Chicago Bulls last year and predicted why they wouldn't make any moves, which they didn't really last year. The difference with the Hawks is that there are a couple different points. One is if they're not moving Trey Young, they're probably going to be relatively similar in quality. Like Trey Young, they're going to have a really good offense as long as he's on the floor. And they have enough other pieces that will stick around that their defense will probably be where it is. It's not fantastic. It'll be where it's going to be. So in many ways, you can argue that what affects that the moves the Hawks would make actually affect the trajectory of other teams more than it affects the Hawks. Because if they move DeJounte Murray, but keep Trey, they're going to be worse, but probably, but they're not going to be dramatically different. But DeJounte Murray would significantly affect the fate of that other team or Capella or Hunter or Bogdanovich, whichever of all of these collections that they're going to do. My, you know, you have probably better sourcing on this than I do. My, read on it this is more more just like seeing seeing the tea leaves and reading them myself yeah is that they will listen on everyone but their presumption will be it needs to be a good deal for us to do it i don't think they're going to be urgent like that's what's different with the hawk situation and some others is that the status quo is a viable option whereas for you know some other players like i mean we'll see if DeRozan puts his thumb on the scale here we'll see if Pascal Siakam puts his on the scale for the Raptors that might not be as much the case and so for the, for the Hawks they're not only considering does this move make us better or worse it's what would be out there if we considered doing this exact same concept in June July August and because yeah. their players are under contract, because their books are not great, but kind of similarly not great next year, they don't have to do anything now, even though they absolutely could. And I would argue, even with the draft pick stuff, they kind of might as well if if it's a reasonable structure. I think that's where I'm at. You might as well just go for this, in my opinion. Like, just kind of break it up now. The, the interesting piece of it is DeJounte. He is now eligible to be traded mm-hmm. after... Uh, I believe January 5th was his date that he became eligible after signing his extension extension, in the summer. Fascinating player. Uh, A guy that I struggle with quite a bit. I never really liked this deal for Atlanta to begin with. I didn't think it made sense because what your goal was to take the ball out of Trey Young's hands when Trey is not a great off ball player and is like drastically better offensively than what DeJounte Murray is. 
I got the defensive side of it, but also I'll say this, man, like I have not loved DeJounte on defense this year. I think it's been very, uh, there've been like inattentive, there's inattentiveness that like typically does not happen with him, at least in San Antonio. Uh, he was obviously an all defense guy previously. I think I would be surprised if that fit worked long term. And if I was Atlanta, I would be wanting to expend as many resources as possible to be able to try and find the best fit for Trey Young as a guard. Like to me, the New York fit does not make sense. Like I've done a whole video on like, I don't think that DeJounte Murray makes sense at all for the Knicks. Like what? You're going to take the ball out of Jalen Brunson's hands to put the ball into DeJounte Murray's hands when it feels like that's the whole thing that like DeJounte Murray wants. Like he probably wants to be a point guard, right? Well, you're not going to do that. Jalen Brunson's a better offensive player than DeJounte Murray. So I, I don't buy that. Like it doesn't, it doesn't line up, but like Atlanta and New York have made trades in the past. Like I know that the Cam Reddish deal, like when he was a first round pick, like that was, or Cam Reddish for a first round pick, like that was a thing that happened. There is a connection with these front offices. I get why that connection would be made to me and D rock in the comments brings this up. The nets make more sense for DeJounte than the Knicks do, because I don't know how you feel about this, Danny. I think the nets are in like a real problem spot right now where I truly have no idea where that organization goes. Well, I'll do they, quick, they have like, I'll, I can do a quick thing on the nets. I think they're in a holding pattern until 25 like that. The idea of, of, well, they'll have some money to spend at that point And, they also, another team that doesn't really have control over their own draft over the next few years because of the other moves that they've made on a team that now no longer exists in that form. And they could potentially get better at that point. I don't think they're going to do anything wild like trade Mikhail Bridges. And I agree that DeJounte is a better fit there. He is a terrible fit with the Knicks. The whole, the, it basically reignites the whole problem that happened with the Hawks. The Lakers could potentially be more compelling. There are a few other teams. I've thought about the Magic as a possibility where I wouldn't necessarily love it because it takes the ball out of Paolo and Franz Wagner's hands. But the yeah. idea that they could have somebody who at least sees a different type of player than some of the guys they have. Incidentally, DeJounte Murray, a whole lot like Spurs. DeJounte Murray is a whole lot like guys the Magic ha have now, but he's different. Like he's the, the defense isn't there. And like there was a quote in um, this is going to be a weird reference, but there was a quote in the Defiant Ones, that documentary on Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, yeah. where Dre talked about how songwriting is a young man's game. Well, playing guard defense is either a young man's game or a not offensively dominant <laughs> player's game. And so once the Jante yeah. Murray got better at offense and got more opportunities, all of a sudden his defense dropped off. And we see that consistently over the course of years. And there will be a point where it becomes not surprising to people. It, it happens. And whether we like it or not, the amount of players who burn the candle at both ends is minimal for a reason. And that's because it's really hard. And so with Dejounte Murray, I think that, the the it, it's sort of a parallel to restricted free agency and restricted free agency is all about falling in love and considering the hawks do not have to trade him i think that it will be a move unless and murray doesn't have the power to put his thumb on the scale the way that derozan and a few others do because a he's not going to be a free agent b he doesn't have the equity with the franchise so yeah. if he says oh, i really want to be a lakers they can say too bad like we, we don't really care 
And well, um, and, and honestly, like I, I think the Lakers are an interesting fit for him. Like that makes sure. some sense. Like, and, and, and like playing like with LeBron, yeah. all that. Yeah, it, it does. It does make some sense. Like I think that is a better fit for Murray than a lot of other places are. So that that's an element of this as well. But a part of what makes the Hawks so compelling is that they're having these conversations about like five players at once, and yeah. the decisions. Unlike for some other teams, like, for example, the Raptors with Ananobi and Siakam or various other ones where it's like, are we going to go wonder or, or the Blazers going back with Lillard and Jeremy Grant and a few others where you kind of thought they're going you're going on one track or another. The Hawks, yep. those decisions don't have to be as connected because they could move Clint Capella mm-hmm. and just bring in Yeko Kongwu into the starting lineup. No must, no fuss. Not a big deal there. Bogdanovich, I think, would actually – he'd be a bigger delta in some ways because they don't have a replacement. Like, there isn't anybody really like him yeah. on the roster. So they could do that. DeAndre Hunter, like, I think Jalen Johnson's better than he is. So they could plug him in. They they have other – even if threes are hard to find, they have other guys they can throw in there. So for the Hawks, what that means, what it, the way it gives them power is that they don't have to be committed by one move to make others. They can say to Team X, Team Y, give us your best offer. If your offer is insufficient, we'll say, we'll talk to you in June. And so I think there's a distinct chance they do almost nothing. I don't expect that to happen. I think the the likelihood of making each individual trade is low, but you you don't necessarily say it's all an all or nothing proposition. To me, there's just like enough... And this is funny that the Lakers like might actually find themselves in this position now where they're not quite in a position of strength, but like they're in a position where there are more options on the table maybe than what I reasonably expected, mm-hmm. you know, a month ago where, you know, you could look at Levine, you could look at DeMar, you could look at DeJounte Murray, you could look at like, I wonder if Malcolm Brogdon comes available. If you look at, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, his sure, minutes, he's, I'm sure he's available if, if the right yeah, recently. Know, if, yeah. So, yeah, no, 100%. So, like, there are things out there that the Lakers could look at. I want to save the Lakers for a minute here uh, and get back to DeJounte and the Hawks really quickly. If you had to rank these assets here in terms of value, Clint Capella, Bogdan Bogdanovich, DeAndre Hunter, how would you rank those three players? There is a little team context dependency going on, but I would personally have Bogdanovich number one. I think that he doesn't have to start or close necessarily, but he can make teams better. And guys who are aggressive shooters and can handle the ball can be useful. A lot of different players. There are places where Clint Capella would make a bigger difference. But the fact of the matter is supply outstrips demand so severely at center that there aren't that many. I mean, people have talked about it for the Dallas Mavericks. I don't think the Mavericks are falling all over themselves to do that kind of a trade. They would listen, you know, I'm, they would do that, but are, they're not going to do it. And then, so for Capella versus Hunter, I, so I would have Bogdanovich one. Capella versus Hunter, again, team, team needs are a little bit different there. I think there are some teams that would see DeAndre Hunter as a negative value contract. He's not really a scalable offensive player. His availability has come and gone. His defense is... A little bit eye of the beholder. Like there are times that it was he, really he's, good. Yeah, he's really good on the ball. He is not quite as impactful off the ball. Exactly. Is what and I so find. do you need that type of a player? And are you willing to pay that type of a player with a contract that he already has? Which is after this year, only three years. It's three years. 
I believe it's 69 million after this year. So that's, you know, 23 a year with where the cap is going. That's not terrible, but it's also not great. Like, I mean, DeJounte Mur- or not DeJounte, DeAndre Hunter got to me surpassed by Jalen Johnson on his own team, who was a, you right. know, I mean, Jalen's one, uh, an amazing athlete and does a lot of other things. Well, I'm not trying to denigrate what Jalen Johnson is and will be, but well, like, here's, here's the question. Like has DeAndre Hunter been passed by like Sadiq Bay on that team who just got traded for four second round picks basically last year. I, I, I mean, one of the questions with Sadiq Bey is, do you trust him defensively as well? And like, he, the, there is a version of Sadiq Bey that I like better than DeAndre, than, than Hunter, but I'm not sure if that player is there every yeah. game. Uh, and um, look, I, I would rather have Hunter to be clear. I'm just saying like, I think that those two are closer but than I, I, I think, think I'd rather have, if I, if I had to play these odds right now, I would rather have Bay on his next contract than Hunter on his. Like where his hundreds is already that. set because it's a, it's kind of going to be, I think kind of a tepid market. There aren't going to be as many teams, teams out there. And because the Hawks have all the incentive in the world to not push hard there. Like they don't, they can wait They're They're not saving cap space. They're not, you know, he yep. has no leverage on them really. So that is something to consider as well. Yeah. And look like Capella, I think is in an interesting position where I think the, I think that, the Mavs could use him like certainly just in terms of having 48 minutes of good center play. If you have 48 minutes of good center play next to Kyrie, next to Luca, that's a big value add. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, 25 of them with just lively, that's not going to be as valuable, obviously. And then you have to figure out what they're going to do with the backup center position later. So I just, I think I would rank them Bogdanovich, Hunter Capella. I think all three of them like have some, fairly reasonable value. If I had to rank them as trade assets, I really wonder about Bogdanovich because he is a guy even more than Hunter that has dealt with injuries throughout the course of his career and is quite a bit older. Similar-ish contracts, let's call it, in terms of where they are now. Well, well, one important difference that the last year for Bogdanovich is a team option. So you can get out of that if you want to. But considering where 16 16 million is going to be as a proportion of the cap, I... You know, if, if he's healthy, which is a huge if, I think it, that would get picked up. Yeah, I think that it would too if he's healthy. I think I would rank them Bogdanovich one, Hunter two, Capella three. I think they're all worth a reasonable amount. Like they're not, to me, those guys are not negative assets. They might be equal in some cases, but they're not negative assets. Let, let's move away. Well, well, one final thing on the Hawks here, and this is the thing that the Hawks have to really avoid here if they can. They need to understand that what they paid for DeJounte Murray previously is not the going rate for DeJounte Murray now. Right. And they have to not get stuck in that zone where they have an anchoring bias of we paid this much. They need to just understand this is a sunk cost at this point. If they want to move off DeJounte in some way, if you can get a good prospect in a first round pick, like that's a win. Like to me, then like if you're doing a Knicks deal, which like, again, I think I would be surprised if the Knicks deal happened, but like, I'm, you know, like who knows? Like to me, it's like Quentin Grimes and a, like one of those weird first round picks they have, right? Like that's what I would offer if I was the Knicks. If I really wanted DeJounte, I wouldn't want DeJounte, but there's been differing apparently takes on that. So I, I don't know. That's where I'm at on DeJounte Murray. Don't let the anchoring bias get in the way of a potential deal. Let's go to the Warriors now because the Warriors are, uh, very important team at the deadline. Now the impression I've gotten is that they are like willing to talk for sure. Like they understand that this is 
this is not like previous years where it was like a trade is a luxury for us. We can increase our chances to win the title by making a move. I think that there is an understanding that like they have to do something now, given where this roster is. Could change when Draymond Green comes back. I think they'll probably let this rock a little bit and see what it looks like. But my impression is that the Warriors will do something at the deadline. Now, you're around there. You're around the team more than I am, to be sure. You live in the Bay Area. Where are you on the Warriors and making a move? Because to me, like, there's just like not, there's not a more important thing to me right now than like what the Warriors decide to do in terms of their decision on like past how you handle the past versus how you handle the future here. A few years ago, my frequent podcast partner, Nate Duncan, talked about the Lakers and said, you know, it's it's about whether the their two best players are good enough to make that kind of a move. And for the Warriors, it's it's a more complicated calculus because it's not only Steph Curry, but it's everyone else. And the everyone else has been mostly bad this year for them. Draymond has been unavailable due to his own choices and actions. Klay Thompson has been below the standard that I think many expected for him. And then Andrew Wiggins has clearly as well. So... For the Warriors, my biggest question is just would that kind of a move actually move them to where they want to be? And I think that window might be more closed for them, and that that's the reality that they need to accept. The other piece of information that they have, which we do not, is how viable is a Clay Thompson next contract. That could technically come by an extension. He's extension eligible, and the CBA is very comfortable with guys taking less than they've made before. So there is a, there's a wide berth there. I mean, technically, like the Vucevic deal was structured as an extension rather than new contract, that sort of thing. Or it could happen, you know, tomorrow. And yeah. they could do something with Wiggins, all that type of stuff. But what I think, it, why I part of why I had the Warriors lower, I think, than you did. You talked about them being a key to it. And, and mentality is an important part of that is that the reality they might need to come to is that they just aren't good enough right now to do it. And basically no team ever gives that up when they didn't lose it. And that's so, so my presumption is that they would keep it together for the rest of this year for that reason. But the other problem is, and this, you know, a story tale as old as time is that I think the, the desire to make a move is there. But it's the evaluation of your own players that is extremely important here. And so if the Warriors are making a move that improves them, presumably that involves trading some of their young guys. Kuminga, Moses Moody, Brandon Pajemski, others could potentially be involved. To to be clear, I want to just what I know, like from what, what I know, at least, and I'm not the most sourced person in the world, but like I, I don't think pods is really on the table in that regard sure that's that's completely plausible um but you then in order to move young guy x and presumably something else salary balancing everything else then if the other team values that young player lower than you do it gets very hard to make a deal happen and the warriors have pretty consistently with the exception of the Jordan Poole situation, which was obviously different, like, and, and I don't think I need to explain why. They've generally been very high on their own guys. And now there's a, there may be a tension between ownership slash management and coaching in terms of Jonathan Kaminga and playing him and everything else. But 
remember that trades are at they're negotiated by general managers but signed off on by ownership and so what that mm -hmm. means is if if the warriors are trading jonathan kaminga to get better joe lakeup is going to have a voice in this conversation and it appears that joe lakeup still sees a lot of potential in jonathan kaminga so there are two big things pressing against a trade one is this over or arguably over but just high high evaluation of their own guys the other is well what are we getting for this are we you know like are they even a, a gonna make the second round or the conference finals if they trade jonathan kaminga and something else for something else so you bring up ownership and that's that's i think the most interesting piece. well there are two interesting pieces of this i'll start with ownership i think you can make the case both ways on the ownership side with the sure. warriors you can say like very clearly the Lakeups have been very very connected to their young guys and that is true from the moment they started the light years conversations the you know two timelines thing where they have the young and the old and everything like that and they drafted particularly young guys like they drafted teenagers which i think was the mistake of this like if you draft older guys that you have salary control over long term to transition into that era it would have made a little bit more sense but because they drafted so young it was always going to take time for guys like moses moody jonathan kaminga uh james wiseman if he would have been able to do it uh he was always going to take time they drafted projects is what i'm saying basically the second piece of this from the ownership perspective is, well, we have this cash cow right now that is Stephen Curry in this team. And Stephen Curry is still capable of being the best player on a championship team. Should we not continue to get as much money into that as we can and get as much money out of that as we can, especially when we're paying such an exorbitant luxury tax bill that we're trying to make this a contender long-term. That's what I'm struggling with, with the Warriors. I don't know what ownership is going to, I don't know where ownership is going to actually come down on this at the end of the day. The, the second piece of it is like, it does seem like, and look, this comes from the outside. This does not come from the inside at all. Like this is me speculating in some way. Uh, it just seems like to me, there's a difference of opinion between like Steve Kerr and Mike Dunleavy in the front office in terms of the value of Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga, uh, playing them versus like their asset value on the market. Like I, I think that the front office really values those guys. And I think ownership, like you said, really values those guys. Steve Kerr has not displayed that yet at this point. And Steve Kerr has displayed a very real desire to hang on to the past in a real way. And the guys like Kevon Looney, Andrew Wiggins, Clay earlier in the season, Clay has figured it out a little bit here as the season's gone on and been a little bit better. Those guys have struggled immensely at this point. And you need to find out what you have with the young guys, I think, at the end of the day, to be able to make a move like this. Uh, I, I think that they have to play guys like Kaminga and Moses Moody substantially over the next month and then make your decision based off of that. I think they don't have enough information yet even to make a decision on what these guys are, what they can be. And you're not going to have a full picture of it even in a month, but you might have more information than what you have now. And I wonder if that disconnect that seems to be occurring from the outside, not from the inside, I wonder if that is playing a part here as well. 
something else to kind of consider in the conversation for the Warriors. There was a lot of com- there was a lot of discussion last year about oh well when their their starting lineup was one of the best lineups in the NBA and it was like that that's a, a fair thing to note. This year, per cleaning the glass, the Warriors have only played 414 cleaning the glass possessions with Draymond Green, Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, and Andrew Wiggins on the floor. And worth noting that those are shifted towards the front of the season when Wiggins and Clay Thompson were both playing very poorly. They have a net rating of negative 9.1. And Looney hasn't been at the same level. Now you can argue, oh, if you make that fifth guy, Trace Jackson Davis or somebody else, or maybe you upgrade on that, then it can make it work. The other key factor that a lot of people get wrong, you know, I don't engage too much in fake trades and everything like that, is the Warriors presumably are, unless it's someone unambiguously great, are not going to trade a bunch of their kind of like salary players for somebody who is going to make even more to, even more money for the long term. So like there's this idea of, oh, they'll trade all this stuff for Siakam. Well, then you have to give Siakam his next contract. And if you're paying him, that, that and him and Draymond and Curry, much less Wiggins and or Clay Thompson, one of whom may be included in the trade, like they it's plausible. I'm not going to say under no circumstances. I haven't heard anything. I don't have those that kind of sourcing anyway. But I would be stunned. That's not the type of move that, that given where they are, that they would make. So they could they maybe trade you know a player who has long-term money for that? Eh, possibly. But it's not the way that I think this is going to go down. I would be surprised if there was a Draymond or Clay move. Like, that's just so complicated. Like, there's just no that, – that feels very difficult to me. Uh, I don't think they're going to sell super low on Wiggins. Like, Wiggins has been terrible overall to start this year. And maybe three, four weeks from now, he looks better enough that people will tether to the player he's been before. But yeah. there, the, it may be the idea of like that everyone else's offers are just so low that they end up going where, where kind of what I've been saying the whole time. Though, you know, I've been wrong. I could be wrong again. Yeah. And Mike Dunleavy is a wild card here that has not sure. existed previously. And we will find out. Uh, honestly, we're going to find out what kind of onions Mike Dunleavy has uh, on some level and ownership too. Like ownership's going to have to play a real factor here. Like it's not just Mike, like it's everybody. Sam, you know this, but the status quo is a significant choice here too. Not meaning like financially for everything else. Like it's doing, doing quote unquote, nothing. Is not cowardice? Like that is a dangerous, bold move in and of itself. That doesn't mean it's a good one. That just means like when you think about where everything is going, like that's, it's different for them than other teams. And now I want to be clear too. There are not just like internal organizational forces here. There are external organizational forces here, particularly in regard to Kaminga and Moody, because those guys are extension eligible this summer. Those guys, those agents want to get their guys paid. We have no idea if Moses Moody is like a, $25 million a year guy or a $10 million a year guy. I think he's one of the two. Like, I think Moody's quite, I think Moody is better than what like his playing time is indicated with golden state. But like, I, I don't know what the number is. And when you don't know what the number is, that means that a number tends not to get agreed to, uh, especially when there's such a wide distance and gap in what the number could be. And I feel that way about Kaminga. I think Kaminga is going to be in a very weird spot as well to try and mm-hmm. figure this out. So, uh, Next team I wanted to talk about is the Lakers. We've talked a little bit about the Lakers at this point. The thing that it feels like is most likely is probably a D'Angelo Russell deal to me. Uh, be it moving him for uh, 
DeJounte, Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan level star, or trying to get something that maybe fits a little bit better next to Austin Reeves in the backcourt. It just feels like Reeves is very clearly better than D'Angelo Russell is. And there's a little too much overlap there, in my opinion, in terms of their skill set. I would I would be surprised, I think, if D'Angelo Russell is still a Laker uh, by the uh, midpoint of February. The structure of the contract that he agreed to, including because this is allowed in the new CBA, the agreement that he will not veto, that he cannot veto a trade. Like basically they, you can, you can either in previous ones, it was basically something the player always had. It was a, a structural element, but now you can equivalent, you can sign that away at the time of the contract signing. You don't even have to wait and do it. And D'Angelo Russell reportedly has done so. That is significant. What that means is that both sides know that this marriage could be one of convenience and one that is not necessarily temporary, but can be temporary. And that's a reasonable proposition for both Russell and the Lakers. He has a player option. We don't know what's going to happen there. And with, you know, part of this is salary matching, but the, the Lakers are hard capped and they're pretty close to the hard cap. So it's not like they could use Russell as a mechanism to add a significant contract this year. Theoretically, actually, him opting in and then them trading him, that would open some stuff up. Presumably the Lakers will not be hard capped next year, though we have no idea what in the world the Lakers are going to look like then. So for me, what I find most compelling about the Lakers, and this has been the story, honestly, since LeBron James took his talents there, low those many years ago, which is what do the people who make these decisions think makes sense around LeBron James? Because like one of the most interesting parts of Darvin Ham's most re- not most recent, but semi-most recent lineup stuff was there was a version of the starting lineup where they had a bunch of defensive players in there. And one of the ramifications of that was, well, LeBron James is the only guy who can really dribble and pass. And that seems bad, Danny. <laughs> well, I mean, it's actually one of the best things you could do if LeBron is open to it. However, if LeBron James is not open to it, it can go poorly publicly or privately. Like that is the way that these things can happen. And so you have to strike this balance. And the Lakers have struggled with this. The Cavs had some challenge, though they had Kyrie for all but the last year. And that made a lot of this easier. Is you want players who can both function with LeBron, so playing on ball and playing off ball, but don't require it. And so actually Schroeder ended up working better than I expected in that respect. DeJounte Murray would be a fascinating test case because we've gotten to see how that can't work with Trey Young, but LeBron is a different kind of player. But then how does DeJounte Murray mesh with Austin Reeves and some of the other players that are potentially a part of that Lakers foundation? We'd have to see. And if it's like DeMar DeRozan, well, then that gets, you know, LA guy, you know, Compton connections and all that. But him playing off ball presents a whole bunch of problems too. And then you get into the contract that he's presumably expecting. And, and so Every every avenue for the Lakers is fraught with its own version of peril, including the status quo. But the nice thing for Rob Polinka is I actually think at weird times there's a benefit to being a little bit asset poor. And I think at times the Lakers, their their assets are, are actually a little bit denigrated. So they have this weird situation where the Pelicans can choose to take either their 24 or 25 first. That decision will be made after the lottery results. But then they also traded they're 27 first to the jazz. It only has a one year conveyance window. So basically it will go in 27 or it won't go at all. 
sort similar to yeah. the picks that Houston owes to OKC. So they have stuff they can trade. They also, you know, like D'Angelo Russell, whether you like him or not, like it's a short-term contract. Rui Hachimura isn't too long, all these type of things. So what the Lakers can say is they're like, hey, player X, we're interested in them. This is all we can do. And they can't squeeze anything more out of you unless they're going to fight for Austin Reeves and the Lakers will just probably say no. I mean, Reeves, even though this year has been different than we expected, he's still on a very valuable contract because nobody was willing to drive the bidding up for him for some reason. You and I complained about that a few months ago. But for the Lakers, so what Rob Palenka is, presumably what his challenge is, what player of the guys who are available for what we are willing to offer and what teams, you know, what teams are willing to accept there, who makes the most sense? And that could be DeJounte Murray. That could be that the Hawks want more. Entirely possible. That could be, you know, I, I don't think it's Kyle Kuzma, and the person who, of course, has connection with the Lakers. But it I, makes- I think he makes a lot of sense, I'm going to be honest, but not enough sense to like really. He, th- here's the thing with the Lakers to me. They have one move. Realistically, they have one move right now that they can make because this is the game I wanted to play with you. Do you think this player has positive trade value? Uh, I'm going to read down a list of Lakers. Uh, I'm not going to include LeBron, Anthony Davis, or Austin Reeves because I just don't think those guys are moving. Point blank. And that includes Reeves. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, does this person have positive value? Yes. Not a ton, but some. I don't think he does. His contract is so low. Like it's, it's not that it's not that big a deal. Rui Achimura. To me, no to other teams. Yes. I think there's a possibility, but I think I would answer no to that as well. Gabe Vincent. Because he's hurt this year. Probably no, though. I think he's underappreciated because, you know, like Gabe Vincent for the next couple of years at mid-level exception money. That's totally fine. Yeah, I think he would not be seen as a positive asset right now. Especially because uh, he's out for a lot of this year. Yeah. Jared Vanderbilt can't be traded right now because he signed the extension late. Uh, Torian Prince, like he's, I, I guess, like somewhat valuable, but like, you know, a second round pick or whatever. Jalen hood Shafino, I think has positive value, but like I will tell you, Jalen hood Shafino is a very polarizing player pre-draft. Mm-hmm. Like there are teams who just don't think a lot of, Hood Shafino as a player. I never, uh, especially, I never broke him down formally. I did not like the film on him personally. Yeah, especially analytically inclined organizations. He, uh, his numbers did not pop uh, last year in Indiana in any real substantial way. Uh, you know, Christian Wood, Jackson Hayes, Cam Reddish, those guys are not like value adds in a trade. Uh, Max Christie, I think like has some value, but he's on the last year of a two-year deal which means like if you trade for him and he plays well, he gets a little bit expensive, which I think hinders his value a little bit. I think he would have positive value, but like, I don't think it would be wildly positive. And then Max Lewis is like a second round flyer. So like the things they have really are maybe a team likes Rui, maybe a team thinks a little bit more of D'Angelo Russell than I do. And then they have the 2029 first round pick or 2030, I guess they could move as well. But like realistically, it'd make more sense to move 29. I think they're in like a really, really difficult position where it's almost like it's almost like they're going to have to go out and like try and convince a team like the Warriors maybe to do like a Wiggins deal and like hope that Wiggins like figures it out with the Lakers in a way that he hasn't with the Warriors, like almost like a challenge trade kind of thing to me. Like you could do like 
in some Wiggins cases, are, they're convincing the player to convince their current team like that's that 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 this is good enough for them. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm struggling with what the Lakers do. I, I think that like they need to go get a perimeter player and like a guard. I, I said Kuzma makes sense for them. Kuzma can at least like create a shot in a way, but like I don't think that they have enough for what Washington would want for Kuzma, frankly, unless. Washington really liked Jalen Huchifino pre-draft. I mean, the single funniest thing would be trading Rui Hachimura back to them. Yeah, that'd be really funny. I, I don't see that happening, to be honest. I don't either. But I do think that you could find yourself in a circumstance where it's like, what does Jalen Huchifino in a first-round pick get you? Probably gets you DeMar, I think, right? Like, that's that's about what DeMar's value is if Chicago I, it, decides to move him. It, if Chicago decides to move him, I could see them aiming higher, even though that would be misguided. Yeah. And like you could use the Gabe Vincent and D'Angelo deals to like make that money work well, and, with and DeMar as well. Sam, the other question, which I don't think the Lakers are engaging in, and this is probably honestly more of an ownership thing, is just, yeah, is that move worth it? You know, is it worth it to give up yeah. another first to make this team moderately better? Because yeah. they did make the conference finals last year, but presumably they're going to be battling for whatever they get from a lower seed. That's just where things are right now. And we don't know LeBron's future, both with the organization and more broadly after this point. And we do know that the Lakers are going to fight for to be relevant because they signed Anthony Davis to that lucrative extension. And like they signed a bunch of contracts that extend beyond this year. The idea of dramatically changing course, that is off the table, at least in the short term. Maybe AD, if LeBron like left in whatever form, whether that was retirement or to play with Bronny or whatever, yeah. then maybe he would see the world differently. I don't think so. I think knowing what we know about AD, he wants to be where he is. So, yeah. so then, okay, you're giving all this up to be slightly better this year when you're not going to have a good seed. And yes, you made it out of a, you made it out of the play in last year. So, I think that would be a short-sighted and probably not disastrous is overstating it, but like it would be a negative decision for them to, to make that happen unless it was a player who was so good that in whatever form the Lakers take next, that player makes sense. And so, so here's, here's my question to follow up. What is that line? Like is, is, is DeMar that line is Bogdan Bogdanovich that line uh, is, I'm trying to think of like other names uh, is at like, I, again, I don't think Caruso gets moved, but like is Alex Caruso, that line is DeJounte Murray, that line, like what, what is, where do we think that that sits? It, so we're, and, and what we're talking about here is like a commensurate salary and a future first round pick, whatever year that pick is. Yeah. It, it, like maybe you have to throw in Huchifino, like maybe you sure. have to do something like that. So yeah. that's, I would probably have that line around DeJounte Murray personally. And like DeJounte Murray, remember that would be significantly less, not, not that the anchoring should matter, but le less than he was traded for in the first place. But DeJounte yeah. Murray, his jump shooting does seem to be significantly more real, maybe not a hundred percent. And that's a the, good sign. 38% for yeah. uh, six attempts per game. So, it's by yeah. far the best of his career. It looks better. So, but even if that goes to 36 or so, like he, he's a better shooter now and you can see it on the film and he's a worse defender now. And maybe that could change, but I don't think so. Generally speaking, that's the way things are going to go. And so, and Murray could theoretically, you know, take a different form there um, in the future. Also, he's on a contract that is completely reasonable, has team control, those kinds of elements. But for the Lakers, it, it, like, but by the way, like a critical thing here is 
I, I think that the Hawks probably do better than that for Murray. Right. So like, well, unless you, that, that's well, what makes so, it hard. Yes. But yeah, if that pick is totally unprotected, there are yeah. not going to be many fully unprotected picks out there. And even though betting against the Lakers often doesn't work out because they can usually get someone and they wouldn't, you know, if you get a fully unprotected pick, that means the team has no incentive to tank. I, I think that there won't be many of those out there. So that could entice, whether it's the Hawks or another team like Chicago or something else to do it where you're betting against the Lakers and you have the potential of it being a top four pick. Now I would demand that theoretically from them, you know, I wouldn't do this like top four dance, like what happened in the, in the D'Angelo Russell trade in the first place, though that was of course an entirely different negotiation. Yeah, no, I'm with that. I I think the Lakers are in a very interesting position. I I think like a challengey kind of trade is the one that I see for them most. Um, I I don't know what that looks like though. Uh, Maybe it is, maybe it's, Maybe it is something like DeJounte and maybe the Hawks like really like Jalen Hutchfino or something, but I, I don't, I don't see that. I don't think I would be surprised by something like that. Uh, and maybe it's, yeah, it's hard. It's really, really hard to come up with a deal for them. It's really hard to come up with a deal for them. Uh, some other random, you know, teams. I wanted to talk about the Kings. Actually, this is not a random team. Let's talk about the Kings. The Kings. By the way, since we started this podcast talking uh, with the Sacramento-Detroit game that uh, Detroit scored 47 points in the first quarter, they have since scored 45 combined in the following two quarters and uh, are losing to the Sacramento Kings again. Uh, this is now a three-point lead for the Kings. I think the Kings need a defensive improvement in some regard. Like they need a leap in some way, shape or form that they can take on that end of the court. I don't know what that looks like necessarily, but I think Ananobi was a name that was rumored with them. Siakam is a name that's been rumored with them. Obviously those two guys make differing amounts of sense in my opinion. Uh, I think Marcus Smart, like if he was to hit the market, which I don't think he will, like he could make sense. Caruso would make a lot of sense for them. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, I think, would make a lot of sense for them. Like, there are names out there. It's just how much do these guys move the needle, I guess, for you in a Kings deal? And what are you looking for with the Kings here at the deadline? Because it does feel like they want to get better and they do want to buy. They're definitely going to be talking to teams. And so whether whether that involves Herder or other players, it does not, based on the reporting that's out there, seem like it's going to involve Keegan Murray. And I, I can generally respect that. I think Keegan Murray is a good yeah. player who will continue to improve. And so I, I'm not, for me, if I were running a team, there would be very few truly untradeable players. But that does not mean I would trade anyone else. You just have to see what the offers are that are there. The, pro- the thing that Sacramento needs to be concerned about, and this is the peril of a DeMontis Sabonis team, for better and force is there are certain players who would make them better defensively who would actually make them materially worse offensively now because when Mm. you do a handoff game and some of this other stuff if you can sag off of a player then you you can scuttle a lot of that for example i i attended warriors pistons um over the weekend and the Warriors basically weren't guarding Jaden Ivey in crunch time. So Jaden Ivey, not a bad player, but they just, they knew he wasn't going to be in the action. They didn't really care. So there is more downside risk there than I think something. So if you just brought in a defensive ace who 
is a low usage player, or for me, I, I'm starting to draw this line slightly differently now. It's not about low usage. It's about their, their, whether they're used in actions or not. So mm. if you can help off however you want to define terms here. So if you can if you can get a player who can check all those boxes, sure, that'd be great for them. I think it'd be somebody who could who could make sense and who you think you can or have reasonable expectation you can either have team control on or consign to their next contract, which is a challenge with Siakam and Ananobi potentially, especially considering Ananobi just happened to get traded to the team where one of his agents' father works and run, runs the basketball ops side of it. So would OG and Nobi have signed, re-signed with the Kings? We'll never know, but it, that, that yeah, and, and for what it's worth, there was a report uh, out of Sacramento. I think it was one of the shows that James Ham goes on. It wasn't James that did it, but it was somebody else that reported that like Siakam may have kind of indicated to the Kings that he wasn't going to sign an extension. I've seen some Toronto fans like get upset of Siakam for like not being willing to negotiate with teams a like nothing he doesn't owe them anything like he owes nobody anything they're trying to move him uh like they're like potentially trying to move him he he has the ability and the right to control his destiny that that is what becoming a free agent and having expiring deal results in at the end of the day if you're toronto it seems like Siakam is somewhat amenable to signing an extension there still. If you really want to maintain the asset value, sign him to a long-term extension. I'm sure people will come and say, well, we don't want to sign him to a long-term extension. He's 30 years old. Uh, you know, We'd rather do like a two-year extension. If you're Pascal Siakam's representation, Todd Ramzar, those guys over there, they're smart. They understand that Pascal Siakam hitting free agency this summer, this is his best chance to get an enormous number from somebody. Like he is going to get a max deal. There's enough money out there that he is going to get a max or deal at, at four years from somebody, right? The, the Pistons are going to offer him a four-year max. Like there's no way that the Detroit Pistons do not offer Pascal Siakam a four-year max. That comes from no inside information. That comes from pure logic, Right. There is an all NBA forward on the market. They desperately need a four man. They desperately need size and playmaking ability. There's no way they're not offering him a max. So there's just like, there's no doing Toronto a solid here. There's no anything. Pascal Siakam has been a great player for the Toronto Raptors for years now. He's earned the right to get to choose how his career goes from this point forward. I kind of just wanted to mention that. I'm yeah, I'm excited I mean, there's, for There's this idea yes. that sometimes happens with fans that players should be as loyal to them as they are to their team and that's not true. Like you no. have a narrow window to do what is best for you, especially when he's done right by the organization. It's not like that's he right. sa sagged and played poorly or anything like that. He played hard, he was a part of a championship team. He has fulfilled a variety of different roles and even if there are some day-to-day game-to-game misgivings with that relative to everything else there's there can be no problems there and so he has the right and, and frankly too like with toronto he is an all-nba guy like he's made it i think he's made two all-nba teams he was a key of a title team if i was him i would have anticipated that all of the marketing material in toronto everything that goes with being like the face of an organization would have come to me once we changed and made some different decisions in terms of our trajectory moving forward, that didn't happen. 
It went to Scotty, who is not yet an all NBA player as good as Scotty is. And as much as we love Scotty Barnes and think he's a great player and will be a great player. I just can't like, I, I can't get any sympathy for the Raptors here with how they've handled Siakam. I, I think that it, it's not like egregious or anything. Like, I don't think it's poor. I just think it's a situation where it has potentially run its course. I don't know if Pascal wants it to have run its course, but he needs to keep his options open point blank. Yep. No arguments here. Uh, a couple other. So we mentioned the Kings. Like, what do you think of what is actually like the value of a Kevin Herter, Harrison Barnes, Davion Mitchell package? Because that seems to be like the max money package that they've, you know, reportedly, this does not come from anything I know reportedly thrown out there. To me, that's pretty weak. I mean, Herter is a good player and he's on a completely reasonable contract, but, and, and Harrison Barnes, like those are two potentially starter level players, but there's not a ton of like surplus value there. You don't expect them to be significantly better moving forward than they are. And Davion, like, I, I think he's worth a flyer. I I've generally believed in Davion Mitchell more than it seems like the Kings do now. I believe in them less than they did when they drafted him, but that's, um, that's a different story. So if like, if you can get Siakam for that, as the Kings, I would consider it. I don't know. I mean, it seems like if you could get that yeah. for them, if Sacramento could do that, then the deal would have already happened because they would have done it. Yeah. So, and and maybe you could get bridge that gap with a first or something. They do have a protected one out there, but you could work outside of that. There's a first allowable draft language that you can use in the CPA. Um, the challenge, though, for Sacramento is I know they've been believers in Duarte and some other stuff is just trading quantity for quality, whether it's real quality or questionable quality, that <laughs> might actually not make you as good of a team. I talked about the idea of their offense and defensive ecosystems being complicated. And you, you know, with these ensemble casts where you need a lot of guys to play well, dropping off at one of the other positions for an upgrade at another means you need to find somebody else and you have to make yeah. that work. And Sacramento, while they have a lot of room under the tax, they don't have a lot of ways to improve because they don't have... Yeah. Um, you know, the middle-level exception helps, but you're not going to get as many players, and they have to pay, presumably, Malik Monk at some point. Um, and so yeah. it's going to be a challenge for them. So I, I think that Sacramento is playing a riskier game than some think, and they should be thrilled with how well last season went. Yes, it's unfortunate they ended up getting the Warriors in the first round and lost in seven, but being a consistently relevant team for them and having their guys under team control that's a pretty good place to be. I think so too, but I understand why they want to move forward and try and like contend here because De'Aaron Fox and Damon Sabonis, like they're in their prime right now. Like they're, they're not going to get, I mean, maybe they will like De'Aaron took a leap this year, so I shouldn't say they're not going to get better, but like they're probably not going to get drastically better. Right. So I, I understand why they want to do it. And when you make the decisions you made in the off season, you kind of are, resigning yourself to like going all in in some way shape or form at some point they just don't have to yet i don't think no uh, i think you can wait for the next guy to come available uh and be happy with like a second consecutive year of 45 to 50 wins and like be good one, with it one other key factor in that of, of benefit of waiting is that if their pick conveys this year which is not definite but is likely then 
those sorts of offers get a lot cleaner from Sacramento's yeah. perspective because you just have those picks. So whatever that number ends yeah. up being, I'm not saying they make the next Donovan Mitchell style trade, but it gets a lot easier when you don't have to couch everything in first allowable draft. And and yes, front offices are nuanced enough to understand these things, but it is just easier to say, oh, we can do two first or we can do three first or what, whatever we're going to say with that. And none All of right. their players uh, are expiring. None of their players are expiring. Like they have time to figure this out. Okay, uh, jump around very quickly here just to talk about a few teams. Uh, Kiernan asked about the Wizards in the YouTube comments. Uh, I mean, look, like I think that they would be willing to move just about anybody outside of Koulibaly, right? I I think that they're holding to and they should learn from Zach Levine and that waiting does not, there is not always a guarantee that the offers will get better. And sometimes they will. I, I criticized the the magic with Vucevic years ago, but that it can turn sour really fast. And if it turns sour, then the Wizards get a lot less flexible. Still plenty flexible because they actually don't have that much bad money on their books. But yeah. if if the reporting is right and they're looking for two first round picks and that's their actual ask, well, then you might end up get being in a much worse place a year from now. It's true. Uh, it look if like the Pistons called and offered like a uh, protected first and uh, Marcus Sasser or something. Like I'd probably do that. Like that I makes sense to would. me. Yeah, uh, like, I, mean, I don't know the, if what that's... are the chances that Kuzma is going to become like a two or a three first round pick guy? Like yeah, and, and though, we, we know to be clear, to be clear, the only reason I bring that up is because like the Pistons have been in the market for like this combo forward who can be an adult and like score right like. I think even Shams has brought up potentially Kuzma with them previously. Like that that's he's from Michigan. Like that that's something that seems reasonable if you want to do it. But again, like the Wizards are not in a rush here. Like they don't have to do anything with Kuzma because his contract only gets more valuable. He makes 19 million dollars in 2026-27. Uh he's on a descending scale contract. Sure. He's going to be really valuable here moving well, forward. He, I mean, a there's a difference between like a player on a reasonable contract and a good player. And like, I'm less convinced mm-hmm. that Kyle Kuzma would be a good player on a good team. And there, there are a lot of people who get fixated on that idea of like, Oh, that's a really good number, but you have to actually be a good player in the first place. I get why people say that based on how he plays with the War- wizards. I do. And based on how he played early in his career with the Lakers, from what I understand, I think Kuzma is more of like a serious minded individual than like what he gets looped in with, with like Jordan Poole of it all and like taking bad shots sometimes and yes, everything agree, agreed on that front. And he's, and he's proven, but he's proven that he can play like a sixth man role when he was younger with the Lakers on a title team. Like he's, he's kind of put in the work a little bit to me. Can I give you, can I give you two different Kuzma stats on this front? His, yes, please you know, his bread is buttered offensively, of course. Kyle Kuzma has basically never had above a league average efficiency season in terms of true shooting his entire career. And yeah, like we're we're there now in terms of like this is his seventh season. He's age twenty eight, you know, per basketball reference right now. And like he is a capable shooter, but he is not a great one. Like he takes them at reasonable volume, like we're talking eight per thirty six. And he's making thirty five this year. His career average is thirty four. That's not bad, but it's also not great. And so, he's but- but he gets guarded out there though. That's the sure. thing. Like yeah, his, it, his reputation, it, like he provides more spacing than somebody shooting 38%. Like he provide. like if you look at Deandre Hunter's career percentages, I bet they're a little bit higher, but like Kyle Kuzma gets guarded out there. Whereas Deandre Hunter, like 
a lot of the time teams will sag off of him. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I do, but Kuzma to me, he's more – Nate and I have argued about this a lot over the years. I think of him more as like a fourth or fifth best offensive player. And if he's your fourth or fifth best offensive player, then the defense becomes more of an issue. Not that he's terrible, but like he's not a huge the plus yeah. there. And so I don't think he's terrible on that end. Like no, but he's, he's not, not been great this cool. year. Like, don't get me wrong. To me, like, if you're yeah. to me, if you're playing him as your fourth or fifth best offensive player, then you need them to be really good defensively. You know, you're talking yeah. more in the in the realm of like a true plus. And he's yeah. a gap filler. But but if he's coming off your bench, yeah, that's totally fine. But teams don't generally break the bank for guys coming off their bench. So Tyus Jones, another name that like could reasonably move. I think. Sure. Uh, Daniel Gafford, like they have him for a couple years and they have very little behind him. Uh, so I don't know that I would want to move him unless I was getting like a potential long-term center option back. Uh, I mean, Mike Muscala, Danilo Gallinari, DeLon Wright, like those guys could all move. Uh, like, I, I think that if I'm them, I'm trying to sell, I'm trying to figure out what I can get basically. Uh, makes sense on their end. The Hornets are another team that like f- fascinating situation because, like, if I was them, I would love to get off of that Terry Rozier money. Mm-hmm. And Terry Rozier is playing right now in a way to where he might be able to trick somebody to get off of the Terry Rozier money if you're Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, to me, to me, Charlotte should be at least considering everything that's not nailed down. And there isn't that much that's nailed down there. LaMelo would be the biggest exception to me. And, of course, Brandon Miller. Like, you, you keep Brandon Miller. You see, yeah, like LaMelo, Brandon Miller, Mark Williams. Like, those are the three you keep in everything And I would I even listen on Mark Williams. I like him a lot. But the generally, to me, if a center is going to be a top 10 center in the league, we would, we'd see more by now. And if he's not going to be that, <laughs> then... Then generally, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very risk averse when, like, I think keeping, keep, like, a Kong is an interesting example of this, like, Cabela, where it's like, teams overvalue the, like, very good but not elite centers when yeah. we've seen year in and year out that the guys who move the needle are pretty obvious. Yeah, the center, it's a fair point. Uh, Terry Rozier over his last 18 games since he came back from injury. 25 points per game, 7.8 assists versus only 2.3 turnovers, shooting 46-39-89 from the field. Uh, honestly, like, if the Lakers could get off of the Russell deal and then just slot in Rozier next to Austin Reeves, it's not a bad fit. Here's the way I would say this: the only if I were running the Hornets, the only way I wouldn't be trading Terry Rozier at this deadline is if I was also running the other twenty nine teams. <laughs> no, I mean, look, like I wouldn't want Rozier's deal on my books long term if I was running a team. Terry Rozier is slated to earn something in the ballpark of like let's call it seventy five million over the next three years. If he keeps playing like this, you know, not a terrible value. But I, uh, I don't know. This feels like a pretty hot streak right now. Uh, if if they can get off of them, like that's a great plan. And if the Lakers can't do anything else and feel like they need a shakeup, like there are worse options, I think, uh, than moving like Russell and Gabe Vincent or something for Terry Rozier. Uh, if they just wanted to get off the money long term, if you're Charlotte, and maybe you get like a second round pick from the Lakers or something. Uh, you know, Gordon Hayward's a guy that I think could be quite valuable. It's just the money. Like, 
I think that the Sixers make a ton of sense for Gordon Hayward. If you do something like Gordon Hayward for Marcus Morris, uh, Robert Covington, and a couple of second round picks or something like that. Do you think the Hornets do that? I think they might as well consider it. I mean, what else are they doing? Kind of that. Like also though, from what I understand and like, I think that like Gordon Hayward has been like a good guy to have in their locker room uh, for like Brandon Miller is a couple of second round picks. Like does, straight note, doesn't it feel like know. Gordon Hayward is going to sign with the Celtics for some low amount for 24, 25 could be, but honestly, again, like if you're the Sixers, like I think Gordon Hayward's like kind of a needle mover yeah. for you like a little bit, like he would help them quite a bit can occasionally run the show, especially on a second side options can let Tyrese play off the ball a little bit more, be a scorer can space the floor for Joel. Like that actually like really like, I I actually kind of want to see Gordon Hayward on the Sixers by the end of the year. I think it would be a nice fit. Uh, Final two or three little quick ones here, Boston, you know, I think looking for a smart bench player, right? Like just a guy that can eat minutes off the bench for them, maybe a wing. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bucks probably looking for perimeter defense. Like that would make sense. Timberwolves looking for a, you know, backup point guard that can eat some minutes to me. That would be valuable. The Thunder, I think, could really use like a, you know, size based uh, improvement in some way. Yeah. The I, guy I, that like, the, I'd love for them to get somebody with legit power forward size who could shoot. But the challenge for Sam Presti is. Any small move takes ammunition away from a potential big move. And I don't know that they'll ever make a big move, but you don't want to take that off the table with something modest. Like, so, so for can example... I, can, I give you a, can I give you a pitch? Sure. Kelly Olenek makes a lot of sense for them, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because Kelly is a 4-5 who can really shoot it, dribble, pass. Like He ticks all the boxes that Mark Dagnalt looks for from front court players. The... Thunder own that jazz pick this year. Say that the jazz really wanted that pick to convey this year because the draft is not particularly strong. Could you do something like, okay, we'll give you Kelly. If you make the pick top two protected, top three protected this year, top four protected, whatever you want to do. And like, you know, give us a second round pick or two or something like that. You'd still have to salary match it, but as a, like, that can be. But that's sweeper. just like Bertans, yeah, right? It, that, that's yeah, simple. Yeah, it, they're, yeah. They're, they're, it, it work like the changing of the trade stuff is a valid sweetener instead of it being like a young player or something else. And considering how those teams value some of the guys that they've drafted, it probably is a more palatable one for them. And you could argue for OKC that it's like, it's kind of a victimless crime because the, the idea is that it gives Utah the latitude to kind of do what they were going to do. And that might actually make the pick that conveys better, you know, depending on how everything goes. So yeah, I, I could see that Olenek is one, like part of the reason I invoked this is because when I, I wrote a Jeremy Grant piece for the athletic and I talked about like, I actually think Jeremy Grant going back to OKC would be a really good fit for them, but it's too small a move for what yeah. they have. So like yeah. you could, they're, they're not going to take on that money. Well, it's not, I mean, I don't think they will. They could do it without it nuking their books or anything. They'd be okay. But they're not going to do it because it's too big a commitment for too small of an upgrade. 
Yeah. I, I think that that's basically what I mean. I agree with you there. Uh, in terms of other teams that I'm looking at, uh, I mean, we talked about the Kings, we talked about the Warriors, we talked about the Lakers. The Suns are a team we haven't really talked about. They don't the have Suns have They have very little ammunition. I've been trying to figure out, like, is there something around, like, could the Rockets do, like, Jock Lawndale and Jay Sean Tate to the Suns for, like, a few second round picks? Other stuff? Question mark? Like maybe like you swap Eubanks and Jock Lawndale and like you hope that like just switching those two because those two guys have proven they can be like good backup centers in other places, but this year have really struggled for whatever reason. Like maybe you kind of hope that like a change of scenery could help you in some way, shape or form. And then, you know, you'd have to get value for Tate because Tate's actually good at basketball though. And like, that's where the problem is. Sure. Yeah, I think that's so. Yeah, like I've been trying to figure out what the Suns can do. The Suns are in a difficult spot. Uh, I mean, the Rockets have a lot of flexibility. Like if the Rockets bought something, I wouldn't be stunned. And if like I'm truly interested to see like if Jalen Green comes available, I I have no information on if Jalen Green's available or not. I'm not saying he is. I'm not saying he isn't. I have no idea on this. Uh, I wonder if like, it's setting up with how good a man Thompson projects to be with how good Cam Whitmore already looks to be with how Jabari Smith has played this year with how good Tari Eason is already is Jalen their path to an upgrade. And given that he's extension eligible this year, do they look to make that decision deadline off season, you know, sooner rather than later? I think they do it later just to understand what they have. Um, but it yeah. is it is one of the, probably the largest looming thing right now with the Rockets is figuring out the Jalen Green situation. But why not why not get more intel unless they feel they already know, which it's possible they have access to a lot more than we do. We, we're just watching you know the yeah. games and everything else. Like they have off season stuff, they have practices, they have everything else, and so maybe they do. But the other challenge with a lot of these kind of trading a talented young guy who hasn't quite delivered is that them improving, even if it's not to the level that we once thought, is the clearest way for Team X, in this case the Rockets, to get to where they want to be. And so are you willing to foreclose on that possibility to get a player who maybe has a higher expected value but a lower ceiling? It's a a hard evaluation to make. It is a disappointing evaluation to make, though it does, though there are many times where it's the right evaluation to make. Yeah, yeah. Two teams in the Southeast that we haven't talked about. The Orlando Magic, like Markel Fultz is back. He's playing. He played, I think, like 15, 20 minutes uh, against the Hawks in that overtime game. To me, like he strikes me as like a prime potential candidate. They have Cole Anthony, Jalen Suggs, Anthony Black locked in long term. Uh, I mean, Markel Fultz is a free agent at the end of the year. If I'm Markel Fultz, like I kind of see the writing on the wall in terms of where this is going. They've played great with Jalen Suggs just drafted Anthony Black. Like, I'm probably not going back there. I wonder if Fultz is the guy that they use as, like, a mechanism to potentially go get, like, an offensive, you know, shooting upgrade off the bench, Isaac something like that. Too, or both, depending on how yeah. much that player costs. I would love to see the Magic be proactive because I think free, I agency, would too. free agency in 24 is not strong in the things they need. 
Like there aren't really good movement shooters. There aren't really dynamic creators. And so maybe they can find that player, whether it's through an imbalanced trade, through the draft, or through free agency. But not only if you could get that player now, do you mitigate some of the risk of not getting that player later, but you also get them for this year when you're playing so well. And so yeah. for me, I would I would treat a potential bird in the hand, not that I know who that bird would be, worth a lot more than what you could potentially, you know, the options that are potentially out there in the offseason. Jonathan Isaac, Markel Fultz, Jet Howard in a first round pick for Zach Levine. Does that make sense to you? Not for the magic. I, I think Zach Levine is one of the worst contracts in the league, if not the worst. Yeah, I, I think I would not do that if I was them is where I'm at, but the kind of player they need is like an offensive upgrade who can shoot, who can play off the ball. I think as much as anything, uh, final team I want to talk about is the Miami heat. I think Miami heat are like kind of a weirdly like sleeping giant in all of these weird, like trade discussions because they have this Kyle Lowry chip. That's kind of hanging there that they can use almost whenever, right? Like, he is a expiring deal of $29 million. They can really get in the mix for any of these guys. Plus, I don't think they want to move Hawkes, but like they have Jovic, they have picks that they can use. Like the Magic feel like to me the team that nobody is talking about, but or not the Magic, the Heat, I'm sorry. The Heat feel like the team that nobody is talking about that could end up in the mix surprising people. I disagree for a reason that's a little counterintuitive, and it's because your framing is that they would trade Kyle Lowry for a guy who's making money for multiple years. I don't think Mickey Harrison is willing to pay that, especially when you consider the sure. raise that Caleb Martin is going to get. I don't know if Love is going to and any other players, but the Heat are weirdly expensive because of the contract that Hero signed and Bam. You know, yep. and Bam is, by the way, he'll get his raise in 26. So, and there's with the way well, the cap and, is going up and everything else. But by the way, like Duncan Robinson as well. And like Duncan sure. Robinson has been so good this year that they can't actually move him. Like they need to keep him. They, I mean, they could think that they could find another Duncan Robinson, though finding shooters that sure. good, it can be hard. So I, I don't think that the Heat are willing, like management, I don't think they're willing to trade Kyle Lowry for a guy who makes as much as Kyle Lowry long-term. So I think that chip is conceptually useful and it doesn't seem like something's going to happen with Hero now, maybe June, July. It is worth remembering that you don't calculate the luxury tax until the end of a league year. So maybe it would be a circumstance, teams almost never do this, but Miami could, of they go over for 24-25, but then they plan on eventually lowering that bill. So I agree with you that the possibility is out there, but I think it is a more faint possibility than you do. Interesting. Okay. Uh think that's all i've got like we didn't really talk about malcolm brogdon i don't need to talk a ton about brogdon like we it's mentioned him a couple whoever, of times. whoever makes the strongest offer and the weird thing for portland is like they don't actually have they, they wouldn't gain that much flexibility just trading him for an expiring so yeah they can they can kind of see this in different ways just whatever is the best overall return just take it fine okay we, we got a comment here from Rao the spurs i, I just don't know what the spurs are gonna do like I, I don't i mean ideally they'd get somebody who could dribble but i don't know that they're gonna gonna do that right now and yeah that, that doesn't feel like a now move to me that feels like a later move to me like yeah. an off-season move to me and then additionally 
I, I just wonder if like maybe they could be like a landing spot for like a expiring deal that is expensive, like in a three team deal, like something like that maybe, but they don't, they don't have as much space as they had last year. Right. Correct. Yeah. They don't have, yeah. they don't have nearly as much space um, depending on how everything shakes out with the projections, like the cap. And because now it seems a lot more likely that their pick is going to be um, high priced. And so that, you know, that factors in with the, cap and everything else like that so yeah they're not a good point they're not going to be as useful a facilitator and the guys that they're moving you know so like mcdermott is expiring jetty osman is expiring Devontae graham has a light partial guarantee for next year i don't think anybody is seeing those guys as positive value so it's more as a mechanism for taking on long-term money which i don't know the spurs could do that i think they would be reasonable to for the right offer but I think their their most likely place in this is as a facilitator, much as it was in the offseason. Yeah, uh, I'll be interested to see what they look like because I think they're an offseason team. I agree with you, but I, I don't think they're a deadline team. Danny, I've kept you for way too long, as we tend to do on this show. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on uh, in your life. Uh you can find my work a lot of different places. Written work is at The Athletic, where I'm colleagues with the great Sam Bassini. You can also um, check out Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. Um, Nate and I do five times a week, but then you also with Dunked On Prime, you get John Hollinger and a lot of other great work, Dan Feldman, Seth Partnow among them, and Discord chats and everything else. And then Nate and I do um, roughly once a week, we do broadcasts for NBA League Pass, which is called the NBA Strategy Stream. We will be doing kings at bucks on this coming sunday which should be a really fun one for a lot of reasons and we're our day is going to bounce around a lot more in the second half of the year because we're trying some stuff out but those are always really fun the production is continuing to get better which is such a thrill and then real gm radio which sam has sam is on at times as well that is Mm -hmm. roughly once a week i already actually recorded with matt moore that is going to come out Whenever I have free time, I have another recording to do today. And then I actually will have a second episode out this week just to make up because I didn't do one last week. Um, so you can you can check that out. So a lot of good places to do it. And, of course, you could check out the great work of, of, of other people who are doing it as well to you know to support them. And I, there are too many to name, and I feel like I would offend people by not including them. Go follow Danny's work. He's the best. Uh, go follow the podcast that he does with Nate and uh, over at Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. They do a great job over there. Uh, we're, we're not going to compliment Hollinger on this show. Like, let's just, let's just, you know, we got to keep John's ego, you know, a little bit lower, much as we love John, but got to, got to keep him a little bit quieter. Uh, trying to think what else I've got. I've got, uh, I've got a bunch of draft guide stuff I'm working on right now. I'm going to have trade deadline big board probably early next week. Uh, just an updated version, looking at the players that could be available, everything like that. Uh, rookie rankings, I think, are next week at this point. Uh, again, I'm like really trying to get ahead of draft guide stuff right now. Uh, rookie rankings, I think, will feature pods. I'll probably write about Wemby again because the defense has been really good. Uh, Hawkes, because I didn't write about Hawkes last time, and one other guy that will be the people's choice, as always, when I take that to Twitter. Uh, and yeah, keep it locked here. Uh, we will be back later this week. Bryce Simon and I are going to talk about the rookies, actually, in the 2023-2024 NBA season. We were really excited to do that. We were going to do that today, but Danny's schedule worked out a little bit better today, uh, and Bryce was great to move it around. Anyway, that's all I've got today. Until next time, we'll talk soon.